plan and purpose that you have that you have worked out through history, Lord, and through a particular people, and we thank you for your redeeming grace, and we pray that that grace would be evident as I teach your word this evening, we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, tonight we'll be continuing our study in biblical theology. So in our study, I've been attempting to unpack the grand narrative of scripture, that grand storyline of redemptive history as we've been looking at biblical theology. And so the way we've been doing it, the way that I've kind of set forth is that we're examining the covenants in particular. Uh, The way that God has chosen to establish relationship with man has been through the covenantal framework, and they really in many ways are the backbone of the scriptures. Uh, it's, It's really the the backbone that drives the plot and the narrative throughout the the redemptive plan. And so we'll see that through our study as we continue. But last week we ended in the garden. We ended with the fall, uh, focusing specifically on the end of our study, the second half of our study last week on Genesis 3.15, that grand promise that God will send a seed, one from Adam and Eve, that would crush Satan's head ultimately. And so it's from there that we carry that storyline forward. As I said last week, that Genesis 3.15 promise is in many ways, it's kind of that seed of the gospel, where in some ways everything present in the gospel is present in Genesis 3.15, and we watch it carry out through Scripture, we watch it build, and we watch it continue until it fulfills in Christ. And so that's what we're doing in our study. So tonight we're going to make our way from the garden to God's covenant with Noah. And so that's where we'll be this evening. And so we'll kind of start off in in Genesis 4. We have some ground to cover to get to the flood. And so we won't be able to to look at every verse, but we'll kind of carry through the narrative as we go. But we see history unfold. We come out of the garden. We see the fall. We're given this grand promise by God that God is going to act. He gives Adam and Eve a covering when they tried to cover themselves, and we talked about that last week, and now we're going to kind of see history begin to unfold, and as history is unfolding, we see wickedness and sin immediately follow the narrative that we saw in creation and in the fall, and so we see that in chapter 4. Obviously, we're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his righteous brother Abel. And we see this terrible story play out immediately after the fall. We're already seeing the terrible effects of sin and the fall and the wickedness of man. And so as we learn of, of Cain and the story, we then are given a genealogy of Cain. So in some ways you can see this kind of wicked line progress, this genealogy of Cain. And as Moses is giving this genealogy of Cain, he ends in Lamech. And so in Genesis 4, chapters 23 through 24, we're introduced to Lamech. And Moses writes, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So we're introduced to Lamech. He, Lamech will end the line of Cain as we kind of see this genealogy progress. But we see Lamech taking two wives. Already we see the depravity of man as he's rejecting God's plan and purpose for marriage between a man and a woman as he's taking multiple wives. And even in that verb to take, it's similar to what Adam and Eve do in the garden when they take of the fruit. Then we see that he kills a man for wounding him. So we see unjust retribution. 
that in Lamech we have a destroyer of life. And if you think Cain was bad, Lamech self-boasts that he's worse. He's basically saying, you think Cain was worse? I'm even worse than Cain. And so we're left questioning how the seed of woman could ever deliver us from the curse. That's what we're left to ask because we saw this promise in 315 that one would come to destroy Satan, that would crush sin, that would undo the curse. And we're left asking ourselves, well, who will it be? Righteous Abel has been murdered. Cain's seed is progressing and only getting worse. And we're asking ourselves, where is the hope going to be found? But then there's hope, and there's hope in a genealogy. And it's a genealogy appointed by God. In verse 25 of chapter 4, Moses writes, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed Abel, killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Seth is born. He has a son named, son named Enosh, and at that time, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. We hear this wonderful verse of hope that people are beginning to call upon the name of the Lord, and they would have learned this from Adam. Adam would have passed down these truths. We saw that in Abel, that Abel is offering a sacrifice. He would have learned of this from Adam who walked with God. And so we're seeing now, though, in the text, as we've seen this terrible genealogy play out, we're seeing hope that there was, is one who is, there's one who is calling upon the name of the Lord. And so Moses here is contrasting his explicit statements about the genealogy of Cain, the wickedness that was prevalent in the land. He's contrasting that with this righteous seed of Seth. And it's clear that it's going to be through this seed that the promises of God will reach their fulfillment. And I think it's important for us as we study biblical theology to kind of pause here for a moment to talk about genealogies. Because as you're as you're studying biblical theology, you're, you're trying to understand that grand storyline of Scripture. You're trying to, to put together the pieces of the puzzle. And you're looking at what the authors are doing as they write. Because they write and they insert things for specific purposes. And genealogies have a purpose. They teach us particular truths. And so we need to ask ourselves, why did the authors put them there? For many of you, this might be the first church where you've heard a preacher preach through a genealogy, as Brian has done faithfully and he's taught us many truths through these genealogies. And so if you've ever been here on a night where he's preached through a genealogy, or on Sunday morning, as he's, I think he preached through uh, one of the Gospels and, and, and preached through a genealogy, then you would understand the value of a genealogy. Um, because many of us don't understand that. But Moses inserts them for a specific purpose, and so do the rest of the biblical authors. You can look at examples like in First Chronicles. The Chronicler inserts 12 chapters of genealogies. Why, why does he choose to do that? The author of 1 Kings doesn't do that. Even though they're writing about a similar time period, similar events, there's differences in what they're doing and what they're intending to do. And the author of Chronicles is writing after the exile, reminding them of the promises of God, the hope that they have, and he's using the genealogies to remind them of their identity and who they are. Or even in the Gospels, we see genealogies, and we see variations in the genealogies as far as Matthew, who starts with Abraham, and then, I'm sorry, Matthew starts with, he does start with Abraham, and then he ends in Jesus. Luke goes backwards. He starts with Joseph, and then he goes all the way back to Adam. 
And so Luke takes us all the way back to the garden with his genealogy. So why do they do that, right? So again, these authors are inserting these genealogies for a specific purpose. Or then in the New Testament, we see women inserted into genealogies, which was not the norm in that time period. And many of those women are women of ill repute. And so we see God's grace and his purposes being worked out in his particular way. And so these genealogies, they teach us things. They're not just boring lists of names. And they're a reminder of God's dealings with his people, that God is dealing with people throughout history. Throughout his redemptive purposes, he's dealt with a particular people to glorify himself and, and to, for his promises to reach fulfillment. And they also give us an identity. They give us an identity as who we are as Christians. My grandmother, she didn't know a lot about her past and about 15 years ago, she started studying kind of the whole Ancestry.com. All those things started coming out. And what had happened was during the Dust Bowl, her family had lived in Missouri. And as her mother and father brought her out here as a baby, they're, sorry, brought her out to California, where I was from, they brought her out to California for kind of that California dream back then of, of leaving the Dust Bowl, finding new opportunities. And what had happened when, when her father and mother came to California is her father abandoned them. They got to California, and he left my grandmother and her mother and found another life and found another woman, had a whole other family, and never heard from her father again. And so for much of her life, she had many questions about her own identity. And so through searching through these things, she was able to find a brother, a half-brother that she had. And so about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, they struck up a relationship and began to be brother and sister at 75, 80 years old, getting to know each other starting to travel the world together, and this beautiful story that happened where she came to know her identity better. And genealogies remind us of our identity, who we really are in Adam, who we really are in God's redemptive purposes. So much like my grandmother who it gave her that identity, as Christians we have an either, even greater identity in Christ that is rooted in the Old Testament promises that he's promised it to his people. Paul understands this because in Galatians he writes, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So he's saying that if you are in Christ, you are heirs of Abraham. And so even as Gentile Christians, we are heirs of Abraham. And so Abraham, we can say, is our father. And we'll talk about this more as we talk about the covenant with Abraham. But if we are tied to Christ, we have been engrafted in to God's people and God's family. So again, these genealogies, they serve a purpose in the text. And so we shouldn't just gloss over We should ask ourselves, why are they being inserted? And here they're being inserted to give us hope. To give us hope amidst a dark world of sin. And so Seth will transition us from Cain, and we'll see that the wicked line transitions to this line of promise. In chapter 5, we see this happen. And we're reminded of our identity in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Moses writes, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. Does that sound familiar? He created them in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. We desperately needed this reminder after the fall. We desperately needed to be reminded of our identity, that we have been created in the likeness of God. After witnessing the destruction that we just saw in Lamech, one who was literally destroying the image of God, 
We needed to be reminded of these truths, and that's exactly what Moses is doing. He's reminding us of our high calling of being image bearers of God. And we are the image of God. Though tarnished and fallen, we still bear the image of God. All of us do. And then in verse 3, we see that this image is passed down. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. So again, Adam is in the likeness of God, and Adam's likeness is being passed down. So the image of God is being passed down is what we're learning here. And it says, after his image and named him Seth. So we see that the image is passed down to Seth, and Adam was a son of God, and we see that Seth is a son of God. Yeah, he is a son of God. But then we see that there's something wrong with this genealogy. And someone will read verse 5 for me. Verse 5, chapter 5. What's wrong? He died. They were promised that. They were promised that for eating of the fruit. But we begin to see this in the genealogy. Verse 5, and he died. Verse 8, and he died. Verse 11, and he died. Verse 13, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. 20, and he died. And so we continue this genealogy, this genealogy that gave us so much hope, transitioning out of Lamech into the seed of promise, but they die. We continue to see this. So we have to ask ourselves again, as I talked about in our first discussion with biblical theology, is we need to ask ourselves, why is the author doing this? Why does the author choose, Moses, choose to write, and he died, repeatedly? Is it because he isn't creative? Is that why? In high school, I learned that when you write, you have to have an extensive vocabulary. So I learned this in my English classes. And one thing that I learned about with Microsoft Word is that you can hover over a word and you can right-click it and you can find a synonym for that word. And so then you can have a more intelligent-sounding word so you can make your paper look better. And so I started doing that in high school. And then after a couple of papers of abusing this, uh, I started to learn that it doesn't always work. The, the word doesn't always match the context. And so my, my papers with these awkward-sounding words uh, were getting marked down pretty heavily uh, because I was trying to sound intelligent, and I was just finding these random synonyms. But I was trying to be creative in my writing, right? I was trying to be creative and sound intelligent. And so, does Moses lack creativity? Is that what's going on here? Does Moses need some synonyms here? Maybe Microsoft Word can help him out? I don't think so. I, th I think that Moses is trying to give us a very clear message. And they died. The effects of the fall are real. And we need one to overturn our death sentence. And he's emphasizing this. He couldn't make it more clearly. Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, and we're watching that play out in this genealogy. We're watching the effects of the fall. It's the curse in action. We're watching the curse being played out. Dying, they are dying. As we talked about last week, surely you will die. Dying, you will die, and that's what's happening here. Dying, they are dying. Each of them, every one of them, they are dying. And so we're left waiting for that one that will deliver us from death. Who will deliver us from this curse? And death provides us with the certainty that each of these individuals is not that deliverer. 
We're still waiting for that seed of Adam and Eve. We're waiting for that one that would crush Satan. And each of these are proving to not be that person. But then there's Enoch. Then there's Enoch in verse 24. If someone will read verse 24 for me. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him away. What happens there? right? It's, Moses, what is going on? Why do you only give us one verse on this? Somehow Enoch knows God. He walks with God, which reminds us again, back to the garden where Adam and Eve walked with God. So in some sense, Enoch is walking with, in fellowship with God, and then God takes him away. And so in Enoch, we learn that he's exempted from death, and it highlights that there's a connection. There's a connection between walking with God and everlasting fellowship with God. Those that walk with God will have everlasting fellowship with God. Communion with God brings exemption from death. Communion with God brings exemption from death. And the finality of death that we've seen in the genealogy, it might not be so final. We're already seeing that, that the finality of death that we have seen in this genealogy, it may not be so final. So Enoch reminds us that we were not born to die. We were not born to die, and Enoch is reminding us that. He's reminding us that we were born to live forever and to walk with God forevermore. And so Enoch is giving us that taste. But then Moses brings us right back to the reality of death. So before we get too excited in Enoch, we're brought back to reality in verse 27, where Moses writes, Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And so our hopes are dashed. And so Enoch is a brief foretaste of what's to come. Already in Genesis, we are seeing this brief foretaste of everlasting life of what's to come. But we're not there yet. We're still waiting for that seed. We're still waiting for that promised Savior that will crush Satan. And then we have the birth of Noah. Verse 28 and 29, when Lamech, and this is not the Lamech of of Cain, this is a different Lamech. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, this is important, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Again, the author of this genealogy is pointing us into special truths that are here for us to see. As we're watching the death, as we're watching Enoch be taken, and then we see Moses, we're seeing something special happen. What is is unique about Noah's name? Dan? For rest. So, yeah, will he bring us relief? Will he bring us rest from this painful toil that the Lord has cursed? It's as if they're asking, will Noah be the one? Will he undo the curse? Will he bring us shalom? Will he return us to the peace and communion with God that we so desperately need? Will he be the one? 
It's as if the name that they give him is, is already showing this hope. It already shows that they know something's wrong. They're already citing the curse. The, the, the truths that happen in the garden aren't just abstract truths as this genealogy continues. They are teaching their children. They are being passed down. They understand the problem. They know there needs to be a solution, and it's being taught to them. It's being passed down, and we see that hope here as Lamech names Noah, this wonderful name of a person. Will he be the one that will deliver us from this land that is cursed? And then we briefly hear of Noah's children, and then there's a break in the genealogy. And so this sudden break, it keys us into the unique events that are about to happen. We're going to get back to Noah, but there's a break, and we see the wickedness of man once again. So in chapters 6, verse 1 through 7, we see this wickedness play out in history. Starting in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took, again that word took, as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God regretted, the Lord regretted, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So we see this intermarriage that goes on, an intermarriage between the, the sons of God and the daughters of man is how Moses describes it. And clearly it's in disobedience to God and his, his plan and his purposes. And so this, I, I'm going to use this as an example, one, theologically, that we need to be careful to not sweat the small stuff. So typically when I see this text and people talk about it, there's a lot of debate on secondary issues. So what I mean by that is what are the Nephilim? Who are the sons of God and the daughters of man? And so a lot of time this text gets distracted from its central purpose that Moses is trying to do because people are looking at ancillary things in the text. Now we should study those things, and it's important to look at historical background and really try and dive into those things. I did that in my own study of trying to wrestle through this myself. But my point is, what is Moses doing is the first question we need to ask. And so we need to look at what's most clear, work off of that, and then ask about those other truths that maybe we can get little tidbits of information on, but don't necessarily serve that central purpose of what Moses is trying to do. So first off, what is clear? What is the purpose of this text? What is Moses trying to teach us? He's trying to show us the corruption on the earth. He's trying to show, again, that disobedience, that clearly these sons of God are doing things in disobedience to God. That they're marrying the daughters of man. Why? Because they're attractive. And it says that they take them as their wives. And again, as I spoke before, we see Adam and Eve take. We see Lamech take wives. And then we see them also doing, they're taking what is pleasing to their eyes. They're following in that same line of Adam and Eve of taking what is more pleasing to the eye than what is pleasing to God than what is the intended purposes of God. And so going from there, what I believe that this is, is what's happening is that I believe if you look at the context where we are in the text, you see two genealogies contrasted. 
a genealogy of Cain and a genealogy of the godly line. And I believe that the genealogies, they're mixing. They're marrying, they're marrying sons of disobedience. And so there's, there's the children of righteousness, the seed of God, are marrying the sons, the daughters of man, so the children of Cain. And we see this in the New Testament where we're warned not to be unequally yoked. This idea that, that we would go for what is pleasing to the eyes rather than what is pleasing to God. That we would marry or yoke ourselves to one that hates the one that we love. And that is not pleasing to God. And then as far as the Nephilim, again, there's more debate on that. Could it be giants in the land? Uh, they're referenced later in Numbers. Uh, I think that's a possibility, right? We, we see that with David, that there were giants at that time. And so we do see giants in the Old Testament. But they're also described as mighty men of old, the men of renown. Um, and whether they're giants or not, I think that they are warriors. They are, again, destroyers of life in many ways, those that bear the sword, that, that use that use. Their means of physical strength in order to conquer others and do atrocious things much in that line of Lamech is what I believe that these uh, Nephilim, that these people are, these warriors on the earth at this time. And so I think most ultimately, though, we need to look at this text and see what's happening is that, again, we see disobedience in the land. That is the purpose of what Moses is teaching us here. They are taking what's attractive to their eyes. So what does God do? He limits man's life. We're already seeing the effects of the fall again play out as he limits man's life to 120 years, right? And so, again, that doesn't mean everyone's going to live 120 years, but we clearly see a distinction between the Methuselahs that are living over 900 years, and we see these ridiculous ages that we can never fathom, and now it seems like the, the ages go down and down, right? And so we see a clear contrast after the flood in the ages of man, and so we're seeing the effects of wickedness and the fall play out. And as this wickedness is multiplied, the unchecked human heart, we're reminded of how terrible of a thing it is in verse 5. So we'll read verse 5 of chapter 6 again. I read it earlier, but please repeat it. So how many of their thoughts? Every. Every all, every intention, only evil, continually. Moses is emphasizing the total depravity of, of man, is, is emphasizing the reality of the human heart. Jeremiah will, will look back and write about the human heart also. We'll see it throughout the Bible, this idea of the wickedness of the human heart. That the human heart is in rebellion to God, which is why we need to be, our hearts of stone need to be taken out and we need to be given a heart of flesh as Ezekiel will tell us later. And so Moses is showing us the wickedness of man evidenced by the desires of the heart. And so we're watching total depravity play out. It's Romans 1 through 3 in live action as we see the total depravity of man. And again, a lot of people, they think the Christian worldview doesn't stand up, but it's the worldview that understands man as we are. When we look at the problems in the world, as we look at the problems in the created order, it starts with man and the human heart. It's not other external things. It starts with man and the human heart. And when we see the brokenness of this world, that's exactly what we're looking at. And so the Christian worldview gives us answers to our identity. It gives us answers to the problem that we have, and it gives us the grand solution 
that we're leading to. But then Noah breaks back into the story in verse 8. As we're seeing this, this reality play out, as we see God's godly grief, we then see in verse 8, but Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So just like Seth broke into that wicked genealogy, we again see hope. We see Noah come back into the story. God will act in a representative head. In verses 9 through 10, Moses writes, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. We see it again, that walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Again, Moses, I'm sorry, Noah walks with God. Throughout Scripture, we'll continually see God act through a faithful remnant. Though the wicked masses will be judged, God will continue to sustain his faithful remnant, the seed of hope, even when all hope seems lost. Even when wickedness is in the land, wickedness is multiplied, there is hope, and God will will achieve his purposes through this representative head. And again, we're left asking, could Noah be that one? It almost seems certain at this point. We see a man walking with God, a righteous man. He's got the right name for the job. Is he that one? He stands in the line of the righteous seed. And in him, God will choose to relent from total destruction because of one faithful son. One faithful representative, God will relent from destruction. And then God will instruct him to build the ark. He gives very specific directions to build that ark. We're familiar with the account It almost seems monotonous as he's giving these very specific directions on what to do. And what does Noah do? He obediently follows. He obediently follows God's particular instructions and builds the ark. And what does God do? He covenants with Noah in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 6. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Then there's a but, once again. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And so as I talked about the covenants last week, I kind of gave uh, just kind of a brief caption for each of the covenants. as The covenant of Noah, I said it's a covenant of preservation. That God would preserve Noah and a family and ultimately his seed in this covenant. That God is choosing to relent from his utter and total destruction, even though the wicked world deserves that. And so it's a covenant of God's preservation. And so we'll see that God will spare a remnant. And again, these promises are in line with that Genesis 3.15 promise. That God's work is not done. Satan has not been crushed. His work is not finished. He is continuing to act in salvation history. And again, Noah does exactly what God says. In verse 22, Moses writes, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So again, we're still seeing Noah obediently follow God. He's listening to God's instructions. He's building the ark. It's likely that it took Noah 50 to 75 years to build that ark. If you could imagine a man building an ark of this size, 
amidst a wicked generation, there had to have been questions asked. We can only assume that there were. Obviously, the text doesn't tell us. But later on, we'll see that, that Noah was a witness. Uh, we won't look at that text tonight, but the biblical text does look back upon that particular time. But the reality is, is Noah stood as a witness against this wicked generation, that Noah stood in contrast to what was happening. And for this long period of time, he's building this ark because God has promised to judge wickedness, and nobody turns. One family is all that we have. And again, so we're contrasting Noah's obedience to the wicked generations of the land. And then we see a massive account of God's decreation. As we've so quickly gone from creation to fall to wickedness to a righteous seed, then we see this massive account of God's decreation. All that God has created will be destroyed, with the exception of one family and an ark full of animals. The rest of the creation will be destroyed. One thing I always find interesting, even before we had our daughter Clara, is, is reading children's Bibles. I would do children's ministry with the toddlers, and we have a lot of Bibles even in our own church, like little children's Bibles, the storybook Bibles with pictures on them. And how I can always know if a children's storybook Bible is going to do a good job sharing the redemptive plan and purposes of God is what they do with creation and the ark. And so a lot of times I'll open them up and right off the bat you see creation and everything's good. They're cre- they, they have all the creation days down. Then they have Adam and Eve down, their creation. But then you get to the fall and you see pictures of Adam and Eve eating of the fruit. You see the snake in the garden. And Adam and Eve are smiling. It's like this bright sunny day. Adam and Eve have disobeyed God and they're smiling. Then you get to Noah and the ark, and you see Noah on the ark, and it's just bright sunny day. Noah and his family are just smiling. There's all these wonderful, beautiful animals on the ark, and everyone's smiling. But the reality is this was a cataclysmic judgment, a terrible judgment, where wickedness was being destroyed, where God decreated his creation, where the deluge of waters flooded the entire earth. It would have been a terrible reality. Though there was grace and beauty in God saving and redeeming Noah and his family through the flood, it was not just this happy-go-lucky time that a lot of these children's Bibles show us. And so a lot of times we, don't, we, we just kind of gloss over this. We're so comfortable with this story, we treat it like many of these children's Bibles. And we fail to see the cost of wickedness. We fail to see God's just judgment and the way that it plays out through history. And so we can't fail to miss that because that only highlights God's grace even more. That only highlights the beauty of God's redemptive purposes when we understand what we justly deserve. And then we see God's beautiful restoration, that God works to restore his creation. And the way that Moses writes this, he does this in line with creation. He reminds us back of the garden. He reminds us back of what we were created to be and what God's creation was created to be. And so some of the connecting points that I'm going to highlight is that in creation we see that the Spirit is hovering over the water. We're all familiar with that. In the flood, in verse 1 of chapter 8, we see that there's a wind blowing over the earth that causes the destructive waters to cease. Again, this idea in the Old Testament, Spirit and wind are quite often used interchangeably interchangeably. 
So this idea that the Spirit is causing the destructive waters to cease, much like in creation, we even see a presence of a dove. In creation, God brings forth all the living creatures. In chapter 8, verse 17, Adam, or Noah brings forth all the living creatures out of the ark. Again, reminding us of that creation narrative. In creation, man is told to be fruitful and multiply. Again, it's renewed after they get off the ark. They're told to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And then we see a covenant that God makes with all of creation in chapter 8. We see what God is doing, his plan and purpose. In verse 20 of chapter 8, Moses writes, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the judgment and the flood didn't change man's heart. Judgment alone will not change man's heart. We're being reminded of that. For the intention of man's heart is evil from the youth. It's a reminder of what we had seen right before the flood. But God is promising that he won't do this again. He says, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Never again will God destroy the earth in the fashion that he did in the flood. We see this wonderful covenant that God is making with Noah and we see that God is restoring his universe, he's restoring his created order. He even restores night and day and, and promises that they will continue. Again, back to creation. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply again in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He tells them that multiple times to continue to be fruitful and multiply. And then he also gives them dominion over creation. He says that all the animals, they will fear them. All the creatures will fear them, that they will have dominion over the created order. So we're reminded of our creation mandate. We're reminded of our identity. We're reminded we're being taken back to the garden and reminded of what we were created for. And we also learn about the blood. In chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. We'll learn more about that in Leviticus later. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Again, reminded of that image. It's a command to not shed blood unnecessarily. Again, it reminds us of our creation worth, that we were created in God's image. Though tarnished, though inherently sinful, though deserving cataclysmic judgment, we're taken back to the garden. We're reminded of our identity. And it's the identity that God is working to restore in us. And in this divine command, we also see the law being instituted. Though we've seen law in the garden, the Mosaic law is not the beginning of law and God's commands, but we see a clear law here given, that you shall not shed man's blood. Ultimately, this ends up leading to a lot of debates on death penalty. 
But the reality is, is it's a prevention so we don't even have to get to that discussion because we're commanded not to do it. We're commanded not to kill another man. It's God's preserving grace in restraining sin. That's the purpose of this death penalty that we're being given for those that would murder another man, is that it would preserve man's life. Again, it's that preserving grace that we see in the covenant with Noah. And so the law, in many ways, is a restrainer of evil. When cities used to have fires in them, what would happen quite often was entire cities would burn down. So in A.D. 64, two-thirds of Rome burnt down. We're familiar with that, most of us, because that burnt under Nero. He would ultimately try to blame the Christians, use that as an excuse to to murder many Christians who would be martyred during that time period. But two-thirds of the city burned. Two-thirds of the city, it burned for six days, that fire. In London in 1666, 70,000 homes were burnt in a fire out of 80,000 homes. So only 10,000 were left of 80,000 homes in London in 1666. Chicago, closer to home, in 1871, closer to our time period, there was a fire that burned for three days. For three days, a fire burned, destroyed 17,500 buildings. So fires in the past, unchecked, would burn for days, would burn entire cities down until what happened was fire code came in. Fire code came in and laws came in to what, how buildings should be built, how they should be spaced farther apart, and we don't see entire cities, metropolitan cities, burned down anymore in this fashion. Because of these laws that have restrained fire, they've prevented fire from spreading to the extent that it's capable of spreading to. In many ways, this command is much like that. It's, it's a restraint against evil. It's not a complete prevention of that fire of sin and wickedness and death and murder, but it's intended to restrain sin so that, fi- that fire will not go unchecked, that that sin will not go unchecked. And that is exactly why the government, that is exactly why society has been given the law and the people of God were given the law as a restraint against sin. And so there's common grace in that even with unbelievers and that there would be a restraint of sin. And then as we continue, we see the formal inauguration of this covenant in verses 8 through 17. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Again, we see this idea of offspring. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast for the earth, of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So this is a universal covenant. It's not universalism. We learn the opposite of that in Noah because God judges most of the world, saves one family, but it's a universal covenant in that God is making this covenant with all creation, with animals, with all people. And then Moses continues in verse 17, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Again, we're being reminded that God will not do this again. And then Moses continues, and God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant 
Again, we're seeing this covenantal language being used between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh on the earth. Again, this is a universal covenant that God has made with Noah. And again, we're being taken back to the garden as God is working to restore his creation. And he's giving us a promise that he won't do this again. We're reminded of what we deserve, yet God is working to show us grace. And in this covenant, we're seeing that he will show us patience also. That he will not judge the earth in the same manner as he did here. Because as we said, judgment is not sufficient to transform the heart. So God is committing himself to set the stage for his redemptive work. This really sets the stage for what God is going to do. Because he's saying, I will not just judge you, though you deserve it. Because we deserve instantaneous judgment. We all do. But God is patient. And he is gracious and kind. And this covenant is evidence of that. That though we deserve that instantaneous judgment, he will not show it. He will not show it now for a time, for a season. And that's a reminder for us Christians, too, because a lot of times I think we want instantaneous judgment on our enemies. But the reality is we haven't received instantaneous judgment. We're grateful for God's patience. We're grateful that God sent Jesus Christ. And if he hadn't have preserved Noah, if he hadn't have made this covenant, these truths would not have happen because this covenant establishes that framework by which Christ will come because God is showing his patience. And then in his grace, he gives us assurance as he gives us that covenantal sign. As he says, if you need a reminder of my grace, if you need a reminder of my patience, you just look to the sky. You just look and you see this sign that I've given you and you can have assurance and confidence in my redemptive purposes. You can have confidence and what I'm about to do. I think it's unfortunate because in a lot of ways, Christians, we've given up on the rainbow in many ways because of the movement that has embraced the rainbow so, so heavily. When we went to Germany, myself, Jonathan, and J.T. Young, who now pastors in Iowa, we went to Germany in August. And one thing we noticed when we got off the plane in Amsterdam is there was rainbow flags everywhere. And then we, we were driving, or actually we had to take a train to Germany from Amsterdam. And during that time, there was actually a protest on the train tracks that prevented us from continuing to Germany. And at that protest, they all had rainbow flags, and they had burned a bunch of things on the train tracks. And so we had to stop, and we had to take a bus, and we had to get someone to pick us up. And so, uh, again... We're seeing the rainbow and, and all these things. And we go into Germany and we're walking around. And on all the buildings, the apartments, there's rainbow flags everywhere. And I was somewhat shocked because I see that very commonly here, but not to the extent that it was over there. And uh, JT turns to me and Jonathan and he says, man, they really love the Noah story. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reality is that's what it represents, is it represents God's common grace, that God is patient, that God is loving, that God is kind, but that God will judge sin. And so the exact message, the exact symbol that that they have embraced, they're almost flaunting against the God that is patient with them. But as Christians, we should look at the rainbow and be grateful for his patience. We should look at it and remember his covenantal sign and not just give up on the symbol that God created to remind us of his goodness. Because that symbol is on his throne in Revelation. 
Revelation 4, we're reminded as God is seated on his throne, there's a rainbow over him. God thinks covenantally. God's plan and purpose is being worked out through history. It's this ancient covenant long ago that is God's preservative framework by which salvation will happen. But what do we do with Noah? We've been delivered from this judgment in Noah. We've seen this happen. We've seen that he's righteous. We've seen this representative, this seed of God. In many ways, he's a type of Adam. He's being reminded of all the creative purposes in Adam, so he's a, another representative head. You could call him a second Adam almost in many ways. We'll see that Christ is another Adam. And so could this representative head be the one? He steps off the ark into a new creation. God reestablishes his purposes with Noah. God commits himself to bless Noah's offspring. But like Adam, we're left waiting for more. Because though Noah was righteous, he will also fall. And the righteousness of Noah is a righteousness of faith. We learn that in Hebrews chapter 11, that it's a righteousness that by faith he trusted in God. It's not a righteousness that is of himself. It is the righteousness of another. And so like Adam, he will fall in the garden. He will taste of the fruit. He'll drink of the vine, become drunk. And like Adam, he'll be exposed in his nakedness. And his sin will lead to a curse. As his children will be cursed, one of his children's descendants will be cursed because of his actions. And then, of course, there's the fact that he died, showing himself not to be the one. So again, we're left with the human party of the covenant failing. The human party who's covenanted himself with God has failed once again, has taken of the fruit and has failed in his covenant commitment, in his covenantal faithfulness. And in the garden, it's God who covers Adam and Eve. We saw that last week. But with Noah, it's his righteous sons. His righteous sons will cover his shame and nakedness, already pointing us forward to the righteous son that will one day come. And that's what all of this is pointing us forward to, is that perfect son, the one who will ultimately deliver us from the flood of judgment that we deserve. So after the covenant with Noah, we're left still waiting for that seed. We're still, still left with that tension. Who is it that will crush Satan's head? Who is it that will come and deliver us from this curse? Yet all isn't lost. All isn't lost because Noah has fallen and let us down again. Because God has committed himself. He has covenanted himself with his people. He's committed himself to his redemptive purposes. So despite the ongoing wickedness of the human heart, God has bound himself to his redemptive plan and purposes. And we'll see that in Abraham. He will bind himself unto death in his covenant with him. We'll close there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your preserving grace, that you are patient and kind, that though our hearts are wicked and we deserve judgment, that you show us grace, Lord. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus, the perfect seed, the new and better Adam, the new and better Noah. We thank you for the faithful son that you have, that you have sent to be sacrificed on our behalf, Lord. Help us to be 
more and more at awe in your redemptive plan and purposes, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.